welcome to the Top Order podcast this week in cricket time in the cricketing carousel that is our guest list. We welcome back Raj to the podcast today. Lippy taking a little bit of a break. Me and Baldy back safely from Tauranga um, on Sunday night from the Black Caps versus England test. Early, too early. At, at Mount Monganui. <laughs> We're going to talk about that game. We'll also impart a little bit of pain on Baldy talking about India, Australia and we'll also just give a little bit of a nod to the Women's World Cup semi-finals all coming up on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. So boys, we're going to start we're going to start <laughs> with England, New Zealand, Bay Oval, Mount Monganui. Uh, second day night test that England have played on these shores the first one back in Auckland um, with the pink ball different uh, yeah different result fair to say I think the first time England have won a game in New Zealand for 15 years I think long time it has been a long Uh, time between drinks somewhere this morning we've got a different uh, New Zealand uh, viewpoint on the podcast tonight Raj back um, on this week in cricket Lippy um, is taking look a little bit of bereavement leave after that uh, that game <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm going to get a little bit here being the only Kiwi I know we'll go Looking we'll go easy this. on you Stuart had three days of pain with Adam and I at the mountain so we're going to we're going to go easy on the New Zealand crew but but look in the aftermath of that game it's been what not even 48 hours since the conclusion of of that test match we've had a little bit of time to reflect on it what are our thoughts coming out of that test match? You know, Raj, you're a very big proponent of nothing is ever as good as or, or as bad as it seems. Is it as bad as it seems for New Zealand? Because they did get a bit of a, a humping from, from England in that first test. Yeah, look, it's an interesting one because I think this is probably, and I've, I've got, you know, inverted commas here that no one can see. This is the worst, you know, that we have been from a, you know, experience point of view for a long, long time without, you know, having two debutantes with the ball mm. and an interesting, you know, middle order, four, five, Nichols and um, Daryl Mitchell. Uh, yeah, look, it, it's not the great, it's not a great result, um, but I'm hoping the only way we can go from here is up. Uh, yeah, we were talking about this last night. Um New Zealand hasn't played well for you know a year, eighteen months at home, losing to Bangladesh, losing to South Africa, um, individual tests and drawing series, uh, and this is just sort of you know adding to that. And they are starting to you know losses in New Zealand are starting to stack up, whereas we had a you know good five six year period there we were almost undefeatable at home, uh, unbeatable at home. When you look at that result, I mean let's let's have a look at that bowling attack. There was there was. Two, two enforced changes. So New Zealand probably ordinarily would have gone in with Kyle Jamison um, and also Matt Henry for that test match. Jamison now out for multiple months. Um, looks like he's going to have surgery on a, on a back issue, a stress fracture in the surgery back. today, I believe. Yeah, yeah so he's going to be out for multiple months now. Um, Matt Henry will come back sooner rather than later. He's uh, awaiting the birth of his of his child. So once that baby comes into the world and the Henry family has settled down, you'd expect him to come back into the test match. But... Debuts for Tickner, debuts for Kugeline, honest workmanlike performances, but weren't as penetrative as we've expected Bolt, Henry, Jamison to be in the past. Is this a glimpse of the future for New Zealand or is this a one-off? Uh, I think this is a one-off. Uh, you know, there was panic stations there with people falling um, left, right and centre, you know, in the days leading up to the game. I think that they need to redefine their roles, especially Neil Wagner with the new ball didn't come off in this situation. I don't know if it'll come off at a later stage, but I say let him carry on with the role that he has been doing uh, well for the last sort of decade. And then you need to sort of build that that bowling line up around them. 
Michael Bracewell being our single, you know, spinner. Uh, you know, I was going to ask Lippy tonight. You know, what does that look like going forward? Is, is mm. that what we're going to do? Have that all-rounder spinner, whether it is Bracewell or a Ruchin Ravindra, for example. Where does that leave Ajaz Patel? What what does the makeup of our seaming attack look like? It looks like it's going to be four seamers and a and a part-time spinner. So there are a lot of questions to be asked. But look, you you can either be negative about it and then take that you know, take that loss or you can build on it and see what worked and what didn't. Well, I think it's probably fair to say that Neil Neil Wagner doing that job didn't really work, but he wasn't helped by the tactics to, to, to a certain extent, right? You know, if we had a look at that, uh, I was the beehive or that shotgun um, image, I think, I can't remember, it was first, first, first up, yeah, first up day three or day four, yeah. they showed England's beehive and the cluster of balls that were hitting the stumps. And then they showed New Zealand's beehive, which really did look like they were throwing darts at a board at times. It was scattered quite literally across that big square. There were not a lot of balls hitting the stumps. Neil Wagner was asked to do that from very early on in the test match with with really a short bowling field. Is that a tactic that New Zealand got wrong or were they just trying to do something funky to counter the funkiness that England brought to the game, do you think? Well, that's the thing. I don't think we can take away how good England were with the bat. Um, they've been doing it for a while now, putting bowling attacks on their heels. Uh, England batted well. Anything that was... There were balls that were in good areas that were still getting dispatched for four. Mm. So they batted really well. You combine that with the fact that England's bowling attack was much more experienced. Just, just You just look at those openers, Jimmy and and Stuart Broad, who actually took that game by the scruff of the neck in both innings. Um, yeah, I, I think it's hard to make that comparison. But yeah, we've got, we've got, to, we've got to sort of take that as a learning experience and, and it's how we bounce back from it in the next test. And I think bringing Henry back will give you a better balance to your attack, right? He's an opening bowler who can do a little bit more with the ball. I think, you know, we talked about it in our hangover breakfast. New Zealand took three bowlers who do roughly the same thing, bowl the ball into the wicket. They're very, very honest bowlers. You know, we thought that Blair Tickner had a reasonable test match. You know, he, he got a couple of wickets nicking guys off. Scott Kugelheim, when he bowled good hard lengths, was, was you know, pretty accurate and and had some had some good moments. But, yeah, it was just that kind of New Zealand lacked a bit of penetration with the ball. They had three very, very honest bowlers asked to do a very, very difficult job. And let's face it, some of the opportunities didn't quite come their way. Balls just side of the fielders and, and so forth. And England really got away from New Zealand. Yeah, absolutely. The, the thing, you know, when we always hear this said after test matches now the positives that you take away when you've got pants and um, one of the things I think Michael Bracewell out bowled Jack Leach in this test match Bob got off. a little bit of turn got his paces right on that wicket um, was able I, I won't quite go as far as to say as to you know to do a containing role but um, pretty much was the only you know the only New Zealand bowler that went anywhere like um, under fours in the, the test match with the exception of the skipper Tim Tim Sally who went wicketless um, in that England second innings so that, that that's something I think New Zealand can take away I want to talk and I want to ask Raj, you know, about the toss and about the decision making um, to stick England, uh, yeah, to stick England in um, under lights. You kind of lose that little bit of control about when you're then going to be able to um, bowl under lights because you've you've got to you've got to think that they've not got a plan in mind, which is ah, oh, we'll bowl first so that we're still bowling after eighty overs, sticking the opposition in. So have New Zealand missed a trick there from a tactical perspective in terms of um, yeah, a bad decision at the at the coin toss, Raj? I think if you if you look at that game as if it were a normal five day eleven till six test match during the day, I reckon that. 
pitch was actually a very good pitch to bat on. A lot of the damage was done under lights, as you, as you said there. So yeah, maybe we did miss a trick going uh, putting England into bat, but I think that you know Tim Southey or the New Zealand sort of brain what do they call them brains, brains, brains trust, brains trust um, thought that that was the best thing to do get 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 a little bit of assistance out of the pitch early uh, and it didn't work and I've gotten my notes here to say that that day one session one is quite important how England actually positioned themselves scored very quickly and lost few wickets well I mean, if you had a look at the first nine balls of the test match, New Zealand created two opportunities, right? They had catch, dropped, very difficult chance. And then um, Crawley was bowled first ball of, I think, was first ball of Neil Wagner's. Yeah. 1.1 1. 1 over's gone. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, New Zealand created two chances in the first eight balls. You know, butterfly effect, maybe one gets taken, the other one doesn't. But they created chances early. For the global listeners who aren't aware of the kind of New Zealand context, there was a lot of rain in the lead up to this test match. There, you know, there was a cyclone. There was heavy flooding in the area, not immediately around uh, Mount Maunganui, but in the east coast of New Zealand, devastating uh, floods and cyclone activity in that area. Do you think that might have led, like the the rain around the preparation of the wicket, they would have been able to get on for several days to prep the ground. Do you think that fed into their thinking? You know, maybe the the pitch is a little bit underdone here. It might be a bit juicy early doors. And then as they roll it more over each day, it gets progressively better. Possibly. Tim Southey did say he thought it was a good wicket to bat on, but I think there would have been a little bit of juice early on. I think more it would have been influenced by the tactics that England may have um, you know, brought to the table, going mm. out there, going after it. If it's moving a little bit, we might get a few wickets. And as you said, there were opportunities uh, created early on. So maybe he was on the money there, but it just sort of fell away after that. And look, that's part of the, the England approach now is I think teams are going to second guess the way they play cricket against England based on the way that England are going to go about both their batting and their bowling. So, you know, a good wicket, they're going to be, oh, shit, do we really want to stick them in here? Or conversely, if it, you know, it's a seeming wicket, you might make the wrong decision because you're trying to overthink how you're tactically going to get yourself in the game against uh, what is a relatively unpredictable approach from the way England are going to are going to play and and talk about it talk about unpredictable approaches um we'll we'll come to the the timing of the of the declaration on day one so after 58 overs yeah england had declared nine down and still with 320 on the board now you know we were talking about session times and is it the big break or the small break and when <laughs> when when do the sessions happen in a day night test but that's tea time on day one right well, yeah, we were joking off air, but Bordy, I think I must have asked you about 77 times what the session times were through the course of this test match. I still don't um, know. I did have a, a few beers during the test, so, I, you know, there's a little bit of, a, a little bit of um, I, I don't know, uncertainty creeping into the bink spray in there. But when you actually just break that down, that a team have declared nine down before the normal scheduled tea break on a, a day's cricket and then have the opposition in pretty big strife at what was it 37 for three or something yeah, like that stumps, yeah. over, overnight uh, you know that is just insane cricket um, and then again uh, you know to be in a position where uh, you know they kept going through that you know through that second innings and, and I think to an extent um, England might have just had a slight little worry that New Zealand had got themselves not back in the game but there was that outside chance that time wasn't going to be an issue but again to kind of score at the rate that they did in that second innings as well and, and just keep going was it, it's phenomenal cricket to watch but we're not surprised are we by the rate of scoring or is it, is it more the declaration on day one 
Because I think that's actually a genuine. We know that the ball is going to move under lights. It's a genuine tactic nowadays, isn't it? Oh, look, a- a- absolutely. I think that, you know, they made exactly the right call. Do you want to see Jimmy Anderson stick his batting half spikes on, um, go out there, play a couple of reverse sweeps, maybe nerdle his way to, Ramp a you know, seven, seven or eight, and then have to rush back in and get the bowling boots on and then come out with the pink ball? Or do you just say, Jimmy, mate, we're... Uh, we're eight down here. Don't even bother putting the pads on here, son. Get your get bowling ready. We're going to be going out there as soon as this uh, uh, this ninth wicket falls. And look, history will tell you it was a pretty good decision for them to have made. Brilliant even decision. if a lot of the older contingent of the England fans that were there, they were apoplectic with rage. <laughs> oh my God, this had never happened in my day. What are they doing declaring after 58 overs? J- send Jimmy out there, get 10 more runs. Like... It was it was ridiculous, um, but yeah, right decision in the end. Uh, look, absolutely, um, and look, I, I think got to shout out, you know, the England batting. It, it, you know, it continues to go on. I think, um, look, Harry Brook. I'm sure, um, it, you know, it's no surprise that he was named um, man of the match. His Test record so far: six hundred and twenty-three uh, runs, three fifties, three hundreds, an average of seventy-eight, and a strike rate of ninety-seven. Um, so yeah, th- that boy can certainly play. Duckett was the other one who um, really impressed me on day one. I think he set up the test beautifully in that in that first session, just poised it in England's favour or made it fall to one side. There, he 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 plays his shots, but I, I was I was talking to somebody about this. Brendan McCullum or however, you know, Ben Stokes, whoever is leading this difference in tactics that England are playing with, they've got this incredible ability to be ultra aggressive but not playing in an angry fashion, mm. just playing really calm, calculated, aggressive cricket. And he, he personified that in the first session. I was very, very impressed with Duckett. Absolutely. I mean, Duckett played really, really well. You saw when they went short, right? When when New Zealand went short to England, England looked like they had a super, super clear plan. And sometimes that plan was, I'm going to show Neil Wagner all three stumps and I know exactly where the ball's going to be and the gap is at mid-on and I'm going to hit the ball from well outside leg stump outside my eye line, back to mid on for four. And that's exactly what Brooke did. I thought the England players had terrific plans for everything New Zealand threw at them. And they, they had real clarity and purpose in what they're doing, as we've seen over the last 10 or 11 test matches. So you're absolutely right. Even though they were aggressive, they didn't take unnecessary risks. They knew where their shots were and, and Duckett was sensational as well. Tell me, Binksy, how was it night three Stuart Broad's got his tail up and is just ripping the heart out of New Zealand cricket. Uh, how 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 was it at the ground when Broad was on fire? Yeah, look, I think the Barmy Army had been look relatively sedate through the course of that day three, just sort of easing into um, a few uh, Boundary Road beers and the odd little pals can. Um, the bar at that point, I think, had gone down to limiting one drink per patron per visit. Um, so, you know, a few tactics required from the Barmy Army to get a decent round in as well. Lots of relays. Yeah, required. lots of relays. But look, they certainly came to life during that night session. Um, yeah, maybe the anticipation of a few beers in Mount Monganui afterwards, but um, certainly the sight of, look, let's be honest, two pretty bloody good players in Broad and Anderson with a brand new pink kookaburra in their hand. Um, and, and look, they were phenomenal in that in that evening session. And we said on the the hangover breakfast, didn't we, Baldy? Is there a better seamer in world cricket when they're on a roll? Like who you know when they've got two or three, you just you you absolutely don't want to see them bowl another four or five overs because they they have got that ability to rip through you. And I, I don't know that there's too many 
uh, seamers that you know have had that sort of impact on a on a session of cricket. Oh, he was he was irresistible, Stuart Broad, wasn't he? And you could you could feel the buzz start to start to come to life in that night session as the ball started to come to life. It, it was a prior to that, not a lot happened on that wicket. It was a good batting wicket. The ball wasn't doing very much at all. The pace was reasonably true. There was one that kept low, I think. Uh, might have been from Southie. One kept yeah. one kept reasonably low, but it looked like a really, really good wicket for batting. And then all of a sudden, Anderson and Broad had, had brought the ball and the wicket to life. And, and, you know, there were a couple of those dismissals that were errors in judgment from the New Zealand players. Yeah, but Conway's were, was a poor shot, I thought. A little and, bit loose. And, and Latham was caught. We talked about purpose and, and being mindful. Latham was caught in two minds, not sure whether to play or leave, and, and ended up really pretty much leaving someone, uh, leaving a ball that hit the top of his off stump. But the one that the ball that dismissed Kane did a bit, and the and the ball that dismissed Blundell did a bit, and so you can kind of forgive those two guys. They got a pretty good cherry and and, and were and were bowled by a pretty good bowler. At that and Latham point. nicked off just before that and got dropped and or was dropped by Crawley. Yeah, yeah. No, so. I think that Stuart Broad bowled incredibly well with his tail up. It, it seemed to I don't know how it looked live. But from watching it on TV, it felt like we were just late on a lot of them. It's almost mm. like it was just skidding through a little bit yep. under lights. He, he gets, he gets. I reckon he gets half a yard quicker or a yard quicker than he looks Stuart Broad when his tail's up. He might, he might get a bit of like a wrist flick or something, or he the gets further forward. Legs are pumping, whatever yeah, it is. But happened. he is, he is slipperier than he looks when he gets when he gets on a roll and he does a little bit with the ball. And you know, well, he, bit, bit of dew coming down, slippery when wet, body. Indeed, but also. You know, uh, thanks. <laughs> Completely ruined my train of thought there. Uh, so we'll, we, we'll, we'll rewind. Um, he just made them play, didn't he? Like we talked about it earlier in the show with the beehive. He just made the batters play everything. And when you're under lights, all you want to do is be able to leave the ball go or hit your pet shot. And he just not did not allow New Zealand to do that. So uh, looking forward to the second test, I guess the easy, easy team to talk about is England. What do you think England's going to do in this second test? I don't think unless there's, I don't know, any injuries on the plane on the way down. Um, I know they flew from Taronga to Wellington this morning. Um, they're not going to change their side, I wouldn't have thought. I think it'll be the same again um, down at the basin. And look, I, I think the thing that I really like, and I said this to, to Baldy and to Lippy when we are down at the test matches, I, I, I am now completely bought into this way of thinking. I, I, I'm not even worried about... June and we play Ireland leading into the Ashes. I'm not even thinking about that. I'm taking heed of what Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes are saying, which is let's just be in the moment. Um, and as an England cricket fan, you know it's absolutely fantastic to be in the moment, celebrate the fact that this is you know ten wins out of twelve for Ben Stokes um, in his captaincy career, and we go and we you know we've got an we've got an opportunity to win a series two nil. Um, and we've got a hell of a lot of confidence in the players, mm. all of them. We saw Zach Crawley having a net um, after he'd batted. Uh, so he, he was already out twice in the test match. And he was just basically in a net with Truscothic and Anton Devsic, you know, giving him uh, dog stick throws. And he was just playing with the same level of freedom that he's gone out. He didn't look to be trying to do anything different mm. to, to correct stuff. He's back in his ability. Um, and, you know, I, I fully expect him to maybe go out and get a score in this next test match. And, it, you know, it's just brilliant to be uh, part of this England revolution. That's the only thing that can really put the icing on the cake for England is if one of those batters goes on and gets a big hundred. I mean, the, the top seven got 25 or better in the second innings. And no, I don't think anyone got past 70 or 80. So I think for England, if there's if there's one work on, it's for one of those guys to go on and get a really, really big score. Because it's not going to be that 
every batter gets a start. And similarly for New Zealand, it's not going to be that four of the top six combined to score 10 runs in each innings. So, you know, there's going to be some coming back together, I think, hopefully for New Zealand in that second test, right? Ask me what we think New Zealand's going to do in the second test. Raj, what do you think New Zealand is going to do I'm in the second gl- test? I'm glad you've asked that question. Um, I reckon the pitch is going to be a bit different. I think it may be a little bit more on the greener side. Uh, there tends to be a little bit more movement in, um, in in Wellington and on the Basin Reserve. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think that the big glaring question is what does our top five look like? Um, I would love to see Conway batting at four. Uh it seems to be stuck in a little bit of a mindset when you know when Ross Taylor was batting at four, Conway was opening the batting, and that seemed to make sense for that side. It doesn't make sense to send one of our two best batsmen up opening the bowling against a new ball against uh, James Anderson, Stuart Broad, or or any opening bowler mm. for that matter. Drop him down to four, and let's let's get a little bit of the shine off the ball and get him in. So is that Will Young in then for you? I think Will Young uh, should come into the side and open the batting. And, and he's actually played well in New Zealand um, recently. So I don't see why uh, mm. why he, he, he should And who misses there. out then in that instance? I think you're you're looking, it's probably a, you know one of those four or five, Mitchell or Henry Nichols. Mitchell scored some runs in the second innings there, so maybe uh, Henry Nichols misses out. And, and I feel like Nick, uh, Mitchell's form in recent times has been slightly better than, than Henry Nichols. Uh, we were talking about it earlier. I think Henry Nichols just needs a 1,000 county runs. Really, he needs he needs a stint where he can just score a butt ton of runs in county cricket or in domestic cricket. He's not going to get enough opportunity in New Zealand to score bulk runs and play all the time. But I think he'll be back if he if he gets that kind of county stint or something, and he just gets um, he just gets a load of batting into him. And from a bowling perspective, uh, Stu asked me, you know, what I thought of the first in when you know while the test was going on, how mm. we bowled in our first innings. I actually think. You know, when we sent out, when uh, when folks came to the crease and, you know, there were five for not many, five for 100. Five for 200, yep. Yeah, five, I thought that we were actually, we'd fought back well. And then even when we bowled England out for 300, uh, 320 odd, whatever it was, mm. I thought that was okay. You know, we'd, we'd definitely pulled it back from where we were in the first session. So I'm not that upset with how we performed with the ball. Um, obviously, it would be nice to get some more inroads and, and make it harder. Um, I don't know if, you know, we've got this, this mindset and, you know, all test cricketers have this mindset of bowling that hard length just outside off stump or whatever it is. I don't think that's going to work against this particular batting lineup. So we've got to try something different. Mm. Is different different from the short pitch tactics in the first test because it didn't really look like that worked? Is that a personnel issue or do you think it's a case of well, Matt, let's say Matt Henry is not available for some bizarre reason. It looks like he probably will be. If he's not available, is it a case of same cattle, different tactics, or do you think there needs to be a change there? Like I said, I don't think they bowled particularly poorly, but I don't think they can bowl ball after ball in that area. Like we said in the about Ben Duckett, he is the personification of it. He just sat back there, he'd let the first one go, or he'd block one, and then as soon as it was outside the stumps and not too wide, he'd just sit back, rock back, and bang, straight through cover, or through mid-off, or wherever. Or he'd pull it, or he'd do whatever. He, he, he just sat there and waited for a ball mm. that wasn't going to get him out bowled, and he just smacked it. And for me, you, you, we talked about it before. The, the biggest thing here, I think, is not necessarily even the personnel, but the order in which you use that. You know, the personnel. Neil Wagner is not a new ball bowler, um, and he was asked to do a job that he's not really done. Um, he's not a pitch up swing bowler. So you know, even when you talk about his beehive or his scattergun or whatever you want to call it, mm. he is the guy that comes in and bowls armpit high and tries to enforce. 
they used him doing that. The, you know, they had to use him doing that with the new ball and with the old ball. Um, I think that's why Henry's so important because he is another new ball bowling option to come in and do a new ball job. Because um, New Zealand have gone into that Test match with only one new ball bowler in in Tim in Tim Southey. And can I just talk a little bit about the pink cricket ball and in, in more general terms? Mm. So um, I don't think we'll do predictions because who can do predictions for uh, an England cricket team at the moment? But um, if we just step back and we're impartial about this for, for a moment, is this a lottery, a pink ball a pink ball test match? Do we need pink ball test matches? And, you know, does this detract from, you know, the concept of test cricket where, let's be honest, if you can engineer it to bowl twice or three times under lights mm. during the course of a, a mm-hmm. five-day test match, you're pretty likely to be in, in the pound seats. I completely agree with what you're saying in terms of there are certain times in uh, in a day-night test where it is way more advantageous to bowl than other times. But that is also true of a test match that's played in the subcontinent where it is very advantageous to bat first and then bowl in the fourth innings. And it's very advantageous to bowl first on a wicket that's got a bit of juice in it. So I don't... Like, while that all that, all that you say is true and is definitely an argument for, well, does that impact the validity or the way that test cricket is played from a day-night perspective? I think that there are definitely changes in variability and conditions in daytime test matches as wickets wear and, and you know, as dew becomes a factor early in the morning in some parts of the world. So I, I think that is, that is part of the fabric of day-night tests. Um, let's let's hear from what you want to say, Raj, because I do want to come back to should we have day-night tests as a second question. Uh, I think it's another strategic element uh, that you know might add a little bit to the game. Uh, I don't think the pink ball is responsible. For, you know, the nighttime sessions are responsible for those. They happened, but I mean, last time England were here, didn't it was you know uh, we played that one at Eden Park and England were bowled out. Yeah, I don't remember that one. Oh, you know, you were, I was sitting next to you. I think you were there. Um, but no, it's. I don't think that that has as big an impact as as you think. It's a strategic element to the game. If you can engineer it in a way that you are in that position, you can bowl twice under nights. You've done the right job, haven't you? Or you've done a good job. That that's one where we were forty six for five, wasn't it? Yeah, that's why I don't remember it. Yeah, yeah. yeah you were a little late. You missed most of the wickets. To be fair, you 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 don't remember it because you weren't there for the first hour and missed all of the all of the dismissals. Um, Pink ball. So you've mentioned the pink ball a couple of times, Pinksy. Let's let's have a look at that because um, there has been a lot spoken about the pink ball in the lead up to this test. There's been a lot spoken about the pink kookaburra generally as a ball that goes soft, that goes dead, that has periods of inactivity. That means there is a real trough in terms of the ball talking under lights or talking when it's new and then going soft and then not doing anything. You've had some fairly strong viewpoints off of air. Is there anything that you want to share around your thoughts around you know, the validity of the pink ball? Does it need to change? Do we need to have a ball that, that does more for longer? What's your what's your thought pattern here? Yeah, so I, I, I don't know which one of those questions to, to answer, so I'll probably just sort of... Just answer back. all of them <laughs> yeah. in, in the sequence that I asked them. Okay, so um, question question one, uh, no. Question two, uh, Kung Pao Chicken, please. Okay. Uh, look, no... Pink ball for me is it's a way to make test cricket relevant in a location where you're not getting crowds in the door um, would be my take on it. And I think in England, as an example, we don't need day night cricket because we sell out our test grounds for every single test match of a summer. 
Um, and we probably have a little bit of that ebb and flow because we use it again. It's, it comes back to a cricket ball. There's a Duke's cricket ball. It's you know it's a little bit different. If I look at Australia, I don't think you need day night cricket in Australia. You you know you genuinely get generally get pretty good attendance, particularly when the uh, the bigger cricketing nations are playing big series there. So mm. again, I, I don't think that you would need that for, for the entertainment product that is Test cricket. Where I think it is relevant is. Um, if we look at Pakistan and we look at India to a certain extent, where you often see pr- pretty dismal crowds now for uh, for the game, uh, and they've transitioned to you know potentially looking at it as a product that's going to get people in to the stadium, fill it up so that you've got a bit of a buzz around uh, day night Test cricket, then yes, let let's use it. So I think we've got to be really careful. Um, and probably what I'd equate it with in, in, in my view and no statistics to back this up is if we look at the big bash you've over milked the you know the golden cow there and, and kind of gone to 77 games in the season you've realized now that you know you, you've probably over um, entertainmentized that product um, and, and you've kind of ruined it to a certain extent and I think it will come back on track next year when it's a smaller tournament I just worry now that we might try and get onto this day night cricket pink ball, um, roller coaster and ruin a little bit of the fabric of of, of the game and and it, this is for me the final thing I'll say this is not me being a traditionalist that that's not the angle I'm coming from I just I think it's relevant in certain markets I don't really think it's relevant and I don't think it would even be relevant in this New Zealand market now because I think that Bay Oval Test match in February with a decent Barmy Army contingent would have still been a fantastic spectacle if it was a day game. All right, thirty minutes into the podcast, I think we should just roll, roll to a swish, oh, old school style. Are you want to roll an old school swish? Roll to a swish. Right. Let's have a swish. We'll have you, a swish, and, and you compose yourself, and okay. we're back to talk India, Australia. Well, from Mount Monganui to Delhi, we're going to talk India, Australia. The second Test match of the series. There's a little bit of disarray, isn't there, in this Australian camp? We've got. Uh, broken elbows we've got concussion we've got your skipper flying home hopefully Mm. back um, in time for the third test match of this series but baldy look i've got to come to you first i think for your immediate thoughts in the the aftermath of you know what can only be described as a pretty thumping defeat a heavy defeat for australia and two heavy defeats on the trot two batting collapses on the trot in the second innings handing india massive advantage in a game in both games that Australia had fought hard to be in the contest you know if you have a look at the way that Australia had India what 130 for 7 in the first mm, innings before yeah. that great partnership between Akshar and um, and Jadeja was Jadeja uh, Ashwin. and Ashwin um, and then you have a look at Jadeja's influence on the game with the ball in the second innings you know Australia were in that game even at what was it 65 for 1 before Travis Head was dismissed Australia were in a good in fact overnight Going into the into the what was the last day of play, mm. Australia were one for sixty one. They had all day to bat, and then if they got sort of what did we say two fifty perhaps in that second innings and made India chase two fifty in the last innings, that's that's a really really interesting finish. As it was, the game was over within ninety minutes. I mean, really, Australia lost nine wickets for ninety in ninety minutes and just handed the game to India through. I think even Australia would admit poor execution of not the right tactic 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I want to have a look at it before we talk about the second innings where Australia pooed the bed a little bit. That first innings where they batted, I actually really liked their intent. They went out there, they went after the ball, uh, and... They, 260 in the first innings in India is, is actually a very decent score uh, and you can see that you know when India were India were falling apart early in their first innings Australia were way ahead of the game and then a mixture of uh, you know good batting and some really poor uh, slip fielding and, and fielding around the bat. I'm not sure if you've seen a lot of... I haven't seen a lot of that the, innings, no. In both, in both tests, the first one and this one, there have been... Uh, Steve Smith's been quite... Um, below par uh, at first slip he's dropped a few and missed a few and, and Renshaw missed a couple I think in this test as well when he came on for, for Warner but you know a mixture of that and some good batting from India really got them back into the game but like you said Australia were actually still ahead of the game uh, going into that third day was the third day I think it was oh, the third gosh, day it was only the when, third when they were 60 odd for one and ahead by 60 odd mm. they were still well in this game if they put up 180-200 India are under some real prob- uh, real pressure going into fourth innings Bordy before we I guess unpick a little bit more the selections mm. for the, for this test match uh, look I guess India are blessed with probably better all-rounder spinning options you know the likes of uh, Ravi Jadeja and Akshar who are you know clearly definitely number six seven test match batsmen and then Mm. you know quality spin bowlers but you know have still sort of been able to to, you know go in and pick uh yeah pick seeming options you've gone in with a debutante in Matthew Kuhneman um who's leapfrogged if that's a word yep or leapfrogged um Ashton Agar who was in the squad to start with as the left arm spin option any sort of any concerns that you've picked the wrong 11 going into the test match well we definitely picked the wrong 11 in the first test and and if you have a look at the result you'd have to say Australia didn't get their um, didn't get their batting right I think you would probably say but actually if you have a look at the way Australia bowled India out to have them 130 for seven I think you probably have to give credit to the to the to the Australian bowlers in that scenario right Pat Cummins hasn't had a great test series so far with the ball. He hasn't really looked like the kind of bowler that would that we would normally expect him to look like, i.e. challenging the bat, challenging both edges, trying to penetrate the, you know, the batter's defense and, and hit the stumps and the pads. So he hasn't had a great test series. And when he's the only um, the only bowler who's bowling seam and you've got effectively three spinners and three part-time spinners, then there's an imbalance in the attack. Um, what, what is the saying? How many how many spin bowlers can you bowl at the same time? One from each end. So one you, from each you end. What do you need two. three for? Well, you don't you don't need well you three arguably front line spinners. Arguably, you don't need three, but you certainly don't need six, right? Um, <laughs> so Australia have picked, and I, I'm I'm being a little bit flippant here, right? But Australia picked Todd Murphy and Nathan Lyon from the first test. They added Matthew Kuhneman, who they parachuted in to cover for um, Mitchell Swepson, who who had to go home. Um, but they brought him in ahead of Ashton Agar. Now, the mail that I've got is that Matthew Kuhneman came into the squad and bowled really, really well in the in the practice sessions. Ashton Agar has been struggling a little bit and the selectors thought, look, we're just going to go with the form guy here. And I don't think it's a reflection on Ashton Agar as out of the Australian test setup in perpetuity or that Matthew Kuhneman has somehow replaced him. But they just went, look, we've had a look at the selection based on the form that you've shown in the nets and Kuhneman was bowling better. The challenge that they've got is that they then said, well, we're now going to pick Matthew uh, Travis Head ahead of Matthew Renshaw because Travis Head 
has better bowling capability or has it gives us a better bowling option. Now, first, they've already picked three frontline spinners. If you need to pick a fourth, then you're doing something wrong in, in terms of the spinners that you've already picked. Also, Travis Head just came off averaging 88 with the bat in the Australian summer and was dropped for the first test. He was your first batsman picked? He, he was my first batsman picked. Well, based on his performances in mm. Australia, not necessarily his record in Asia, which yeah. the selectors have pointed to as being the problem, yet they picked David Warner, who has a similarly poor record in Asia. So, like, the inconsistency of the official line from a selector's point of view is what confuses me as a fan. Not that I'm saying Australia should have picked somebody different based on my opinion as a so-called expert. I'm just confused as to what their thought process is, right? Yeah. It's almost as if Mark War is chairman of Selectors. I, I, well, I, don't, I just don't understand why you would pick three spinners and then say Travis Head is, is a spinner. I can completely understand if they went, well, actually, we're going to pick Travis Head as the third spinner. And if we need yet more spin, we've also got Manus Labuschagne, future 200 test wicket holder, <laughs> and also Steve Smith, who made his debut as a spin bowler for Australia. It's just confusing what, the way they went about it. What about pace bowling? India always have two yeah. pace bowlers. Well, I well, agree. Shami well, Forfer in the first inning. This just shows how valuable Cameron Green could be to that Australian test side. So he missed the test again. If he had been picked at six, one, we wouldn't have had probably Matthew Renshaw in the picture, and we might not even have Travis Head in the picture, but his ability to bat in the top six and provide that second seam option would have been massively invaluable for Australia because it would have meant that we could pick Cummins and three spinners and still have Kerry batting at seven. If they wanted to do it the same way India does it, then they would have had to have Pat Cummins bat at seven or they would have had to pick a guy like Michael Nisa to bat at seven. And the, the comparison in terms of the batting capability, when you look at Akshay, you look at uh, Jadeja and then you look at Ashwin coming in at nine, it's just light and day. There's no comparison between those two. So you, like you say, India have got the better spinners and their batting capability means they could select a much more balanced test side. Uh, moving on to the second innings, the batting collapse. What what do you make of... Do you have prepared remarks about have, the, the second innings batting for uh, Australia? Unfortunately for you and for the listeners, I do have a couple of prepared remarks. C can I ask a question leading into this? And, yep. and that is around the batting plans as well. So can yep. you, you cover that off? Because this looked like the worst sweep-a-thon I've ever seen, this this second innings. Well, so, they, they've got the sweep out. They've used which the... Which they didn't lose any wickets apart from. I think Kawaja was out caught reverse sweeping in the first innings. Mm -hmm. Only wicket to fall to a sweep shot in the first innings. So in the second innings, they've employed the sweep and the reverse sweep, so not just the regulation sweep, which is dangerous on a low, slow wicket where the bowlers are bowling at the stumps, but they also employed the reverse sweep, which is also a, a high-risk shot. I look back to, I think back to Matthew Hayden's commentary where he was he scored a lot of runs in India playing the sweep shot. And he actually said in commentary, I wouldn't be playing the sweep shot here because the bowlers are bowling at the stumps. When I swept in India, I swept on line. I.e. if it's not going to hit the stumps, I'm going to employ the sweep shot because I can't get bowled or LBW in that situation. But if the ball is, if the ball is going to hit the stumps, I looked to play with a straight bat. And that was Rohit Sharma's perspective on it as well. He's like, we, we, we look at it as being, we need to get down to the wicket. So I think Australia got their tactics wrong. They admitted that they've got their tactics wrong. They also didn't execute very well at all in terms of their choice of sweep shots. So no matter which way you look at it, Australia have got their um, have got their tactics wrong. It's interesting uh, you mentioned Matt Hayden there because Matthew Hayden he was actually a good sweeper in general. He mm -hmm. played the sweep shot a lot in Australia everywhere. It was part of his game plan. I feel like the sweep shot, especially for guys like Steve Smith and and, and Manus playing the sweep shot. Steve Smith doesn't play the sweep shot. He he goes on the back foot and noodles it around the corner. I don't know why um, the sweep shot has started to be. And Steve employed. Smith is a great example because he is a great. Um, 
he has great footwork. Mm. He he has a wonderful, wonderful footwork to spin. And that's where like a guy like Michael Clark was successful against spin because he would he would go, all right, I'm going to get a big step to the line of the ball and then adjust my sort of st- hop step to the right length so that I can cover length and I can mm. play the ball pretty much wherever I want and I can adjust my hands and my bat angle to play that way. So Australia have really missed a trick there from that perspective and not mm. at least trying to use their feet a little bit to the spinners. And I think they've got a little bit gun shy from the point of view of the, they've maybe tried to use their feet a little bit and then, mm. you know, nicked off or, or been stumped or whatever um, and not been to the pitch of the ball beaten in flight. And it is hard, to be fair, it is very hard to use your feet to Aksha because he bowls so fast. The thing that really disturbed me about that Australian batting performance in the second innings was it it had some characteristics and traits where if you look at the mentality, it is very unjust and Langer-like, right? Australia have said, this is the setup that we want, right? This is the mindset and this is the the, the environment that we want to create as players and this is the coaching staff that we want to have as part of that. The challenge that they're going to have now is that there is a possibility that they have lost some of that strength of mind and mentality that Justin Langer instilled in them in the as, as evidenced by that second innings and as, as evidenced by their collapse in the second innings in the first test, right? So Australia have to look at it, I think, and go, right, we're missing some mentality here. How are we going to get that back in our setup? Because the, the, really, they were not mentally strong enough to cope with in, what India challenged them with. And I'm not saying that that's because Justin Langer is not the coach and Ronald McDonald is, but they have lost something in that um, in that in that mentality, in that setup, in that environment. And Pat Cummins is the leader of that test team. When he comes back, he needs to instill in his players a better mentality than first ball of his batting innings going for a massive hoik over deep mid-wicket and then getting out first ball. Like, that is not the mentality to show mm. how much you value your wicket to your fellow players if you're creating that environment. Now, I'm not saying that they can't do that. Absolutely, I think they can. But they need to get back to a little bit more harder, um, hard-nosed value on your wicket kind so, of cricket. So, so going forward then, so that, that's a great thing, a great idea to have. But in practice, what does that actually mean from a batting plan perspective? Do you... Do you do you, is there anything that they need a think- different they need a different plan they need to look at that and go well the evidence suggests the evidence is overwhelming that suggests and I'm not and I'm not trying to heap criticism on the on the Australian team as you say Raj nothing is ever as good as, or as bad as it seems but I think they need to look at their tactics and say were that was it the right approach no and did we execute it well enough? No. Okay. We need to go back and have a different approach. What's that approach going to be? Is it that we're going to play off the back foot? That traditionally doesn't work. Is it that we're going to go out and try and use our feet and prepare to be maybe stumped or, or maybe miss a ball if it beats us in flight? Okay, maybe fair enough. But they've got to do something different and they've got to have a, a place a little bit more value on their wicket than going, I'm going to take risky shots first ball or I'm going to try and play a reverse sweep when it's not my strength. If it's their strength, like you say, Matt Hayden, great sweeper, Steve Smith should go, well, what's my strength? I'm great at using my feet. I'm going to try and do that. Yeah, and if he gets stumped doing that, you go, fine. He's trying to play to his strength. Absolutely. And I I would absolutely accept if a player was playing to their strength and, and, and made a mistake and got out. But it didn't look like that was the case if you have a look at Australia's batting innings and that second innings of either test. From a Indian perspective, uh, what what did you guys like? I really liked the way uh, Ravi Ashwin bowled. I know Jadeja got man of the match, but I think Ashwin was instrumental in that first innings, uh, bowling really good lines. And 
the real difference, if you actually have a look at the group of spin bowlers India have and the group of spin bowlers Australian, Australia have, is actually the speed at which Australia, uh, India bowl at. They get very high and they bowl at probably about 5k slower on average than the Australians do. And it just explodes off the seam and I really like the way Ravi Ashwin bowled. And, and, they, and they've got tremendous variety in their attack, right? You've got Ravichandra and Ashwin who bowls a little bit different line. He, he sort of attacks both edges of the bat and then you've got a guy like Akshar who's really trying to bowl a little bit flatter and quicker than Jadeja. He's trying to attack the stumps all the, all the time and get you with the one that goes straight. And then you've got Jadeja from over the wicket or around the wicket bowling slightly slower but still that variation. Um, you know, I just think Australia... Obviously, you know, Kuhneman and Murphy are very early in their test mm. careers. They they just don't have the experience as we saw with the New Zealand attack as compared to the England attack. But you have to take your hat off to those Indian spinners. They are fantastic bowlers and they're at the absolute peak at their game at the moment. Your thoughts, um, I haven't really had a chance to talk to you about this. Your thoughts on um, Todd Murphy. Uh, he looks like a really, really good prospect to me. Look, he really does. And I mean, he out bowled Nathan Lyon in that first test. And Nathan Lyon, to be fair to him, copped a lot of criticism and has come back really really well in the second test so you know I'll put my hand up and say I'm not as big a Nathan Lyon fan as many are he's an excellent cricketer but I thought um, Murphy out bowled him in the first test Lyon came back and bowled really well I think Todd, Todd Murphy is a great find for Australia because Nathan Lyon probably has two or three years left in his career. By that stage, Todd Murphy will be 25 and he already has great variation. He already has great control. He's not trying to bowl six different balls. He's got a subtle variation on the same kind of ball, which I think will stand him in really good stead going forward. And But I'm not a finger spinner, so we really need to come back to Stu on that one. I like the wicket-keeping in this test match. I thought Carey had a really good game with the gloves, mm. decent stumping. Um, and Shrika Barrett as well uh, looks a real solid, in fact, better than solid, a, a very, very pure gloveman. And I like the intent he showed as well. I know it was only a 20-odd in that um, second innings. And I do just want to give, I guess, a bit of a public service announcement, Baldy. We talked about this a little bit. If you are following Matt Renshaw on TripAdvisor, please don't <laughs> trust his reviews. Uh, have you found someone worse than Shane Watson? I think I think on evidence in the first couple of test matches, I think it, it, it all points to Matthew Renshaw and Shane Watson being some of the poorer reviewers and they both play for Queensland so it pains me very much to say it but I mean Matthew Renshaw in that test match I know we were being flippant but at one point he had more incorrect reviews than he did runs in the test which is which is a problem right I think he's actually got more incorrect reviews than runs in the series which is the yeah. more concerning thing I mean he was picked because he does traditionally play spin reasonably well and he's got a good record for Queensland recently in, in the domestic form of the game in Australia but he has looked he has looked like he's not quite up to it against those Indian spinners and but he's not alone he's right not, he's not alone but sure, surely some of the onus has to go on the man at the other end right got to be a little bit stronger going no Matt, that's there. hitting middle off you uh, middle off of middle <laughs> yeah off you shoot and to be fair Peter Hanscom a lot of people have been critical of the Peter Hanscom selection bad in a floppy as well better bad yes. than a floppy very very nice has made runs in both test matches has looked of the Australians other than maybe Kawaja. In fact, maybe even including Kawaja has looked very assured against spin. Binksy, do you, do you want to comment on the on the setup issue? or I want you to comment on it. Um, it's effective. Look, he's an effective player against spin. It's not a setup that I would coach young children to adopt. The, 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 well... It's not so much that he taps his bat outside his outside his eye line, but he he, he adjusts his hand so his bat's almost um, 
not parallel to the ground, but it, it's sort of facing towards point. It's just a bizarre setup that he's got. I but, don't like it. Uh, it it's, not, it's not aesthetically pleasing. But- he looks like Ricky Ponting compared to Steve Smith, though, right? Wow, this is true. Yeah, mm. so let's leave him alone. He's scoring runs. But he's he's hitting the ball in the right areas, right? He's hitting the ball under his eyes. He's He's got a plan. He looks like he's got a plan, and he looks like he's able to combat those Indian spinners. So, you know, so, that's a good selection. Can, can I ask you, Binksy, just as a, an impartial? Um, Not impartial because there's an ashes summer coming Yes, up. sure. As the Australian, if you were, you know, in that Australian dressing room at the moment and, and you know, you're there setting their strategic direction for this next test, is there anything that you're changing or things that you're highlighting you want to see from them in this test? Yeah, look, I, I definitely think I would want to see a change in the in the personnel, to be perfectly honest. Um, Australia, let's be honest, um, they've unearthed a gem, I think, in Todd Murphy. But realistically, he's a replacement for Nathan Lyon. Correct. Um so how often are they going to play in tandem? Not very often. And um, the strength of Australia has been its seam bowling. If you look at um, teams that have been successful um, in India um, against India, they've generally generally done it by finding a way to take wickets with the bowling attack that they would use in home conditions. So um, you know, if we look at um, England, have had a little bit of success with being able to bowl dry with their seamers. I know they won't probably do that ever again because they'll just try and take twenty wickets no matter how. Um, but you know, they've had some plans and they've backed their you know back their seamers by and large. So I, I look, I think there's some personnel changes coming in this second Test match, and I think the uh, sorry third Test match. I think the other thing I would just say is. India is the most difficult place to go and play away, period. Mm. It's harder than going to Australia and playing on Banksy wickets. It's harder than going to England and playing on wickets that nip around a little bit and the ball wobbles. Um, it's harder than going to South Africa and playing on um, quicker uh, quicker pitches against their attack. So, I, they I th- can play as well. Yeah, but I, I think almost Australia, have, to be honest, they've just got to actually forget um, you know, forget the first two test matches in this series. Um, to be honest, if they lose the other two, which we predicted they would, we said it would be 4-0, I think pretty much unequivocally, it, it doesn't have an impact, I don't think, on um, their future, um, you know, their future series for, for, for me. I um, mean, it doesn't have an impact on the fact that they're most likely to be in that World Test Championship final against each other at the Oval. Um, that's a reset and it's, you know, it's game on. I, I just think they miss Mitchell Stark. Like, yeah. from a bowling point of view, like if you have a look at the well, he's impact... N- he has, he, he has, he's not injured, he's being left out, right? Uh, I think he's still coming back from that finger okay. injury, right? Remember we broke well, his finger. I mean, he could bowl some handy left arm spin if he needed to. Well, actually, yeah, if he needed a yet another left arm spinner, he could. But, but his <laughs> his like his ability to swing and reverse swing the ball, I think, would have been valuable for Australia in those first two Test matches to provide a point of difference in their attack, other than Pat Cummins, who hasn't had a great Test match, but is a champion player. So I just think Australia haven't had quite the impact that they need from their seam attack. Are you disappointed a little bit more in the fact also that Australia's actually won the toss in both of these tests and mm-hmm. and, and really not... Not taken, gone on with it yeah. to win one. Well, that was that was my theory behind the 3-1 prediction that I made is that Australia would win a couple of tosses in, in, in India and one of them they would bat really well in the first innings, build a big first innings lead and then, and then put pressure on India and bowl them out twice. It hasn't transpired that way. Australia have really let themselves down in terms of winning the toss not posting a big 350-400 plus score in either of the test matches and then collapsing in the second innings, handing that advantage back to India. If India had to chase 220 or 230 in either of those first two test matches, I think we could be looking at this series as one all 
really, at, at worst, worst case scenario. But Australia have just let themselves down with their with their batting in the second innings. And I think we've just missed that point of difference in their bowling attack from someone like Mitchell Stark. Well, guys, I think that does just about wrap up this episode of the Top Order podcast. We will be back in your feeds next week with This Week in Cricket, where we'll wrap up the Women's World Cup, which is just moving into the semi-final stages. Uh, one of those spots um, already um, taken for uh, for India, but we've got still a, a bit of a deciding to go in the other group there, net run rates and whatnot coming into the picture. That happens overnight tonight. Mm-hmm. Lots of ads. Yeah, so and it lo- involves South Africa. So, look, there could be problems. Exactly. So we'll, we will cover that in next week's This Week in Cricket. But for now, it's uh, good night and God bless from us all here in Auckland. And we'll see you next week. Good night. <laughs>